Good morning. Let's go ahead and take our seats so we can get started. All right. I was going to start by singing a song, but I didn't think you'd all appreciate it. Will you? Oh, my grandfather's clock was too large for the shelf, so it stood 90 years on the floor. Wait, aren't you singing? How about the Murphys had a party? No? The Murphys had a party just about a week ago. Everything was plentiful. The Murphys, they're not slow. They treated us like gentlemen. We tried to do the same, but only for what happened. Well, it was an awful shame. You haven't heard this song? (laughs) See me after class. (laughs) I wasn't going to start that way, honest. I was going to start with a little humor, and this is what we'll do. The greatest truth that little children have learned, no matter how hard you try, you can't baptize your cat. When your mom is mad at your dad, don't. Let her brush your hair. (laughs) If your sister hits you, don't hit her back. They always catch the second person. You can't trust dogs to watch your food. The best place to be when you're sad is grandma's lap. Here's some great truth for adults. Raising teenagers is like nailing jello to a tree. Wrinkles don't hurt. Honestly, kids, they don't. Families are like fudge, mostly sweet with a few nuts. Today's mighty oak was just yesterday's nut that held its ground. Laughing is a good exercise. It's like jogging on the inside. I see some people laugh jogging on the outside. (laughs) Middle age is when you choose your cereal for the fiber, not the toy. Great truth about growing old. Oh, my, here we go. Anybody 70 and over, we know about this. Growing old is mandatory. Growing up is optional. Forget the health food. We need all the preservatives we can get. When you fall down, you wonder what else you can do while you're down there. Because it's hard getting up, y'all. You're getting old when you get the same sensation from rocking in a chair that you got from a roller coaster. I don't even get on them. (laughs) The frustration when you uh, know all the answers, but... It is frustrating when you know all the answers, but nobody bothers to ask you the questions. This is old people, see? We understand this. Time may be a great a healer, but it's a lousy beautician or a makeup artist. Wisdom comes with age, but sometimes age comes alone. That's a sad commentary. There are four stages in life. You believe in Santa Claus. Then you don't believe in Santa Claus. You are Santa Claus. Then you look like Santa Claus. This is success and how true this is. Age four, success is 
not piddling in your pants. At age 12, success is having friends. At age 17, success is having a driver's license. At 35, success is having money. At age 50, success is having money. At 70, success is having a driver's license. At age 75, success is having friends. Where'd they all go? At age 80, success is not piddling in your pants. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we can spend together understanding your word, believing your word, trusting your word. Enlighten our hearts and our minds to be better Christians, more Christ-like in our studies, in our lives, as we treat one another. In Jesus' name, amen. By the way, I'm Gary Brown, if you didn't know who I am. Like I said, the initial class, number one, I'm Laura Lynn's husband. Bibliology is what we're doing, and we're doing a review. So I'm kind of reviewing the first five uh, classes that we had. Initially, I said bibliology is foundation to all doctrine, and it is. The Bible is the basis, the starting point of all our beliefs as Christians. And everything we know about God, about Christ, about how we ought to live, is revealed to us by God in his word. The term bibliology. See, now this is review. All you, those of you who were here, you, you got this. The term bibliology comes from two Greek words crammed together. The first is biblios, which means a scroll, a book, a roll. The second is logos, which means word, statement, expressed thought, talk, or dialogue. Bibliology is most widely understood as collecting, arranging, and explaining the truths regarding the Bible. Now, I I said this in our first session, too, but I want to repeat it. Bibliology is not Bible study. Bibliology is studying the Bible. We're talking about historical things. Well, we'll, you'll see a little more about that. Bibliology is also in two categories, systematic theology and apologetics. Theologians often classify sections of theology in ten categories. Does anybody remember any of those that we talked about? What would be the study of God called? Theology. God, study of God. Then there is Christology. What do you think that is? The study of, come on, you can answer, the study of Christ. Pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. Angeology is a study of angels, both good and bad. Anthropology is the study of man. Harmartiology is the study of sin. It's a great word for sin, harmartia. Soteriology is the study of salvation and ecclesiology is the study of the church and eschatology is the study of end things. Well, bibliology has its own um, classifications. And that's on your outline. If you didn't get outline, shame on you. You need one. Cheat and look at somebody else's. <clears throat> they normally go like this. Revelation, inspiration, inerrancy and infallibility, canonicity, textual criticism, hermeneutics, illumination, reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible, authority, 
preservation, perspicuity, sufficiency of the scriptures, the apocrypha, archaeology that supports the Bible, and alleged difficulties and discrepancies that are in the Bible. We didn't talk about all those last time. In our, our very last class, which was almost a year ago, it was October 13, 2019, we dealt with various ways that people, group, people and groups deal with Scripture. We talked about cults. We talked about Catholicism and uh, neo-Orthodox, those, those type of things are what we talked about. We also uh, talked about the uniqueness of Scripture. And the specific issues was revelation, inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility. That, that, those were the last ones we did. Just to kind of refresh your mind on the uniqueness of the Bible, I want to run down some things. I'm going to do it fast. The Bible was written over a period of fifteen to 1,600 years. Old Testament was written between 1,400 and 400 B.C. The New Testament was written approximately 40 to 80 or 95 A.D., now, 80 or 95 depends on when you, when you uh, actually um, count when Revelation was written. <clears throat> the Bible was written in 40 different, or by 40 different human authors. They had a variety of backgrounds, shepherds, fishermen, tax collectors, doctor, military general, kings, cupbearers, prime ministers. <clears throat> Only a few of these had actual formal education. That would have been Paul. Luke, the doctor, and then, and then uh, probably Moses, because he was educated in the finest schools in, in Egypt. Scripture was written in different literary forms, too. Letters, sermons, law, we think of the Pentateuch, uh, poetic descriptions, you think of the Proverbs, narratives of historical events, prayers, praise, practical sayings, Warnings by the prophets and even the New Testament apostles. It was written on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. Scripture was also composed of a variety of circumstances. I mean, what these guys were going through at the time they were writing, just amazing. Moses was in the Sinai wilderness. Jeremiah was in a dungeon in Israel. Ezekiel was a captive in Babylon. The Apostle Paul wrote several of his books while he was in Roman prison. John, the evangelist, the writer of the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, uh, was exiled to the island of Patmos. So that's a pretty amazing different places and circumstances these guys wrote. They wrote in three different languages, Hebrew and Aramaic in the Old Testament, Mostly Hebrew. There are some in uh, major parts in the Old Testament, like in Daniel and such, where uh, they use um, Aramaic. And then the New Testament was written originally written in Greek, but there were also, and we talked about that, some Aramaic terms that Jesus had, had used, like Abba, Father, and things like that. Oh, I didn't turn the page, but I have more. And there are many different subjects covered. I love this part. You know, it shows you the variety of, of God's mind and how he puts these things and these circumstances in his word for us to identify, for us to understand what he's talking about. The existence and the nature of God. Where do we learn that from? In God's word. Creation of the universe. The meaning of human existence. The purpose of our existence. 
and the final destiny of human uh, mankind and the earth, and we know that's going to change. So all those things are entered, entered there, and I, that's why I wanted to go over that uniqueness of the Bible. So we gave simple definitions, and if you look at the outline, it's going to parallel exactly what I'm going to say. So the first one was revelation. Revelation is God's disclosure of himself to mankind. It's God's communicating to man what man otherwise would not know. How would you know there's a God if he didn't tell you there's a God? Or if he hadn't, if it hadn't been recorded in scripture that he created? Or that he talked to people? We wouldn't know that. But God did that through his word. The next one is the term is inspiration. These are going to be quick. I hope, you know, I get a little windy here. The term uh, inspiration literally refers to God's breathing out his truth through the medium of selected men. Illumination is the process that the Holy Spirit uses to enlighten our hearts and minds to make clear the truths of God. I used this illustration last time, and I'll use it again. It's like going into a crowded room, but going in there blindfold. And it's totally dark. But not until the light is switched on do you see things. That's what God's word does to us. Oh, wow, are you kidding me? I'm a sinner going to hell. What? Jesus died for my sins? And now I can have fellowship with Almighty God because of what Jesus did? Those are lights that God's Holy Spirit turns on in our hearts and our minds. Then we talked about inerrancy and fallibility. Inerrancy, simply put, is the word of God is without error. That which is recorded in scripture is true to the facts. Is everything in scripture true? No. Satan said, hath God said? Is that true? Well, yeah, God did say that. But he twisted God's word, and it was a lie what he said. What this means is everything in God's word is recorded Absolutely the way it was done. There are a lot of lies in Scripture, but Scripture doesn't lie. Infallibility means that the Word of God will not mislead. It does not make mistakes. Hermeneutics, also known as inspiration, I mean interpretation, is the process. This is really important. It is the process of determining the biblical author's intended meaning. What did he say? Who did he say it to? Why did he say it? What were the circumstances? That's interpretation. Now, application is something else, but that's its interpretation, what Scripture says to them at that time. It's also the method of arriving at the proper understanding of Scripture. Canonicity? is the study of how the books of the Bible came to be accepted in the inspired writings, or as the inspired writings from God. And it's also the process of determining which books belong to the Bible. When we get to canonicity, you'll see how that works. Textual criticism is the work of scholars using available manuscripts to determine as nearly as possible the original text of various books of the Bible. Perpiscuity. Who knows what perpiscuity is? Who can tell me real quick? Tell me, Charlie. Clarity. Clarity, yes. Perpiscuity is the clarity with which the Old and New Testament were written. It affirms that the scriptures are written in such a way 
that its teachings are available to plain people like you and me. For God so loved the world. What do you think that means? God loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. What's that mean? He gave his son, Jesus Christ. So it's very plain. There are difficulty areas in in scripture, of course. But by and large, God's word is plain to, to, to most people. Now, because the Bible comes from God, it has his authority. If God gave it in Revelation, and he inspired it as he did, then God's word is the authority that, that um, he expects us to obey. He wants us to, uh, as his authority, the Bible has the right to tell us what he wants us to do, how he wants us to act, how he wants us to live. The sufficiency of Scripture. Sufficiency of Scripture means that the Scriptures alone, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are capable of teaching how we are to live life, how we are to mature in godliness, how we handle problems, how we know truth. Second Peter 1, verses 2 through 4, deals with the sufficiency of Scripture. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him. All this is talking, the knowledge of God, knowledge of Christ is talking about God's word given to us. It has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Where are those found? They are found in God's word. That through these you may be partakers of divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary, gives this this statement on on this same portion of scripture. God has not only given us all that we need for life and godliness, but he has also given us his word to enable us to develop this life and godliness. These promises are great because they come from a great God and they lead to a great life. They are precious because their value is beyond calculation. If we lost the word of God, there would be no way to replace it. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Then we talked about revelation. I don't know if I left the definition over here or not. Yeah, I did. When we studied revelation, we looked at several aspects of it. Two specifically, and I forgot one. We looked at general revelation and we looked at specific revelation. General revelation is, Sean isn't here, is he? Anybody been in the Marine Corps other than Sean? I inherited it by birthday. <laughs> okay. While you're in boot camp, Ben, and you walk into a building with your hat on, what's the DI going to tell you? Huh? No. He's going to tell you, remove that cover. Marines call it a cover. 
army, we called it a hat. Anyway, they're going to say remove that cover. Well, <clears throat> the revelation means unveiling or uncovering and describes an unveiling or disclosure of truth from God to mankind that we would not otherwise know. As I said before, everything we know about doctrines are revealed to us by God in his word. So revelation, or general revelation, is the truth God revealed about himself to all mankind. Everybody has general revelation, and that's done through nature, conscience, and providence. And we went over uh, Romans chapter 1 when we, when we studied that, so that is in there. General revelation does not, however, give us a full picture of what God is doing. But here's the one I forgot. It's progressive revelation. I can't believe I forgot it, but I did. Progressive revelation is the aspect of, uh, is simply put, it means God revealed himself to his people over many centuries. Remember, we talked about 1400 B.C. to 400 and B.C. and then on through there. Okay. Over many centuries, periodically giving new information, but it was built upon and did not contradict or deny anything he said before. He revealed it in many portions and in many ways. So it was like he told um, Moses, I am who I am at the burning bush. Back in Genesis 3.15, it's talking about, you know, the, the, the uh, seed crushing the head of the serpent. Well, he didn't say that was God coming flesh. We didn't know that. So you see, as you read scripture, you get a little more here, a little more here, a little more here. And then when you're done, you're going, whoa, wow, that's how God did it. Well, that's what progressive revelation is. Special revelation is the divine re- revealing of truth through specifically through Jesus Christ and the scriptures. In contrast to uh, general revelation, special revelation is available only to those who have access to biblical truth. I'll give you some examples here when when we get to it. You may remember or you may not remember what Jesus said in Luke 8. How many remembers what Jesus said in Luke 8? Right, I wouldn't either. It was the parable of the sowers. And there are some seeds sown uh, on rocky ground. There are some sown by the wayside, some sown in the thorns, and then some on good ground. The, the, the apostles didn't understand, which, what is that? So they come to Jesus. His disciples asked him, what does this parable mean? And he said, to you has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest, it is given in parables. And he tells them why. That seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. What is that? But the election, the elect and the non-elect. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 14 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? That we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words 
uh, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. But the natural man, the unborn-again man, this guy that Jesus was talking about here, that seeing they didn't see and hearing they couldn't understand, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are foolishness to him, nor can he, be, uh, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. It's God's Holy Spirit through illumination, through his work on our lives that we understand those things. And 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4 and verse 6. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts illumination, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Inspiration, we went to next. This, we focused on the various inadequate um, theories and positions on what inspiration was. And then we ended up with the orthodox view. And I'm just going to kind of touch on that a little bit now. The first thing was God was a source of inspiration. And, and we noticed that the term um, inspiration, it's really kind of a crummy translation. Inspiration means to breathe in. Expiration means to breathe out. So the translators didn't do a good job on that. In all the, the uh, uh, Greek texts, it's one word in Greek. And, well, let me read the verse to you. There's only one verse in Scripture where it uses inspiration, the term inspiration. And that's 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Inspiration of God is one word in the Greek. It's theonousos which is two Greek words, God and breath or breathing or spirit. It depends on how you, how you translate it. But, by, but together, this word means God breathed or breathed out by God. So when you think of inspiration and you're thinking of the writers that were inspired, this was God breathing out on them his inspired Word like we'd say, wow, he was inspired to think of this concept, or this this the song was inspired. That's the idea. That's the effect that it had on on the writers of scripture. Next, we saw that that man was the means or the conduit of God giving this inspiration. We looked at Second Peter one verses twenty and twenty one, which says, knowing this first that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter is trying to make the point that it isn't man, it doesn't come from man, it comes from the Holy Spirit who moves man to do what he, is at, who he wants them to do. The word moved is a Greek word pharaoh, P-A-T-R-O, Pharaoh, and it means to bear up as one would bear a burden on their back like a backpack. 
or to carry along. The same Greek word is used to as a bird carried along by the wind and supported by the wind, or a ship that is carried or borne along waves in, in the ocean. God chose these writers who were carried along by the Holy Spirit as the human authors of the inspired books they wrote. It says that it was from God. They spoke from God. The inspired scriptures are as if God audibly speaks to us. Any of you have ever gotten certain situations in your Christian life and you're struggling and maybe God led you to a portion of scripture in the Psalms or even a proverb or even Paul's writings. It was just exactly what you needed at that time. That's what God's Holy Spirit was doing with his word there. Then we looked at various theological definitions for inspiration. The first one was given by Drs. Norman Geisler and William Nix in their book, A General Introduction to the Bible. They wrote, inspiration is that mysterious process. Inspiration is like the process of the virgin birth. We can't understand it, but it happened. We have no, we can't put it in a test tube and test how it, how it happened. It just did, and God did it. So that's why they're calling this mysterious process. Inspiration is that mysterious process by which divine causality worked through the human prophets without destroying their individual personalities and styles to produce divinely authoritative and inerrant writings. Then I wanted to add, which I did this time, they wrote another book that we used at Biola as, as uh, our textbook for the class. And it was um, From God to Us, How We Got the Bible. Same authors. They just kind of crammed a lot of stuff in a smaller book. And this is how they, the definition they gave you in that book. I like it. The Bible is inspired in the sense that spirit-moved men wrote God-breathed words which are divinely authoritative for Christians, faith, and practice. Easy definition. I like it. Then I gave a definition of a biblical scholar who was a little more in-depth, and we'll, we'll go over that. He said, inspiration is God's superintendence of human authors so that using their individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. I also noted several points about that definition. First, God superintended. He governed everything. Now, it, was, and it mean, doesn't mean he dictated or that they were little automatons, robots. He gave them thoughts that they needed to put down there, and they wrote down scripture through that. That's his superintendence. It's like a secretary when some hotshot comes into his office, take a note for me, and writes it down. It's not like that. It didn't happen that way. God used human authors and their own individual styles, personalities, and background. That's why when you read scripture, you read what Paul says over here, and what Luke might say over here, or Matthew may say over here, they'll use. Luke will use a lot of medical terms in his gospel. Paul actually coins several phrases in, in his writing. And that's why you see these different styles, you see these different personalities, because God uses their background, their education, and such to, to um, bring about his word. 
Then we talked about the extent of inspiration, which includes the very words of Scripture. Another one, how many remember Matthew 5.18 that we talked about? Uh, You do? No, no. Uh, (laughs) That's pretty good. (laughs) No. He says, for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, you know, if you're using ESV or something like that, it, it won't be jot, it will be iota. <clears throat> so, heaven and earth will not pass away. Um, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. The jot or iota, in the Greek it's iota, but the jot is this. It's the smallest of the Hebrew um, letters, the yod. It's, it's kind of a, a meager stroke. It's kind of like uh, an accent mark or an apostrophe. Then the tittle is a tiny extension. You'll get this when I tell you. It's a tiny extension on a, a Hebrew term. It's like the flip of a, a Q and the little doodad on the back of a Q, just this part here. Or if you have a, a, an A, just a block A, and you've seen these others where they put the little lines in the bottom of them, or a C where they put these little lines in, on, on that part, that's what it's like. That's kind of like the serif in, in modern typeface. Jesus said, not even the smallest dash, dot, word is going to pass away until all is fulfilled. And finally, this definition specifically refers to the original autographs. We'll talk about that in depth when we get to textual criticism. But the, it, it applies specifically to the original autographs that relate to inerrancy. Well, um, on our very last class, I'll leave that. On our very last class, we looked at the subject of inerrancy and infallibility. I gave a couple of definitions on inerrancy and infallibility. The first one was provided by, the first two, was provided by um, Dr. Edward J. Young. He is the Westminster Seminary Philadelphia fame and of OPC fame. Anybody read anything by Dr. Young? You should, if you haven't. Anyway, he provided these definitions. By the term infallible, as applied to the Bible, we mean simply that the scripture possesses an indefectible authority. As our Lord Jesus said in John 10, 35, scripture cannot be broken. It can never fail in its judgments and statements, All that it teaches is unimpeachable, absolute authority, and cannot be contravened, contradicted, or gainsaid. Scripture is unfailing, incapable of proving false, erroneous, or mistaken. Then for inerrancy, he says, by this word, we mean that the scriptures possess the quality of freedom from error. They are exempt from liability to mistake, Incapable of error. Error <clears throat> in all their teachings, they are perfect in a perfect accord with truth. Now, for our our, our study, I used a little different uh, definition for <clears throat> inerrancy, and this is by Paul Feinberg. The meaning of infants, uh, inerrancy. Inerrancy means when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted 
will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with social, physical, or life sciences. God's word isn't a history book, though it records history. It isn't a science book, although science is in it. It isn't a, 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 a book on uh, counseling, but God's word is used to counsel. <clears throat> well, anyway, I also told you that there was one very important qualification that we needed to look at, and I alluded to it earlier. Inspiration, and therefore inerrancy, is limited to the original manuscripts. You'll see why that's important. The doctrine of inerrancy maintains that the Bible is without error as originally given. This places emphasis on what I placed emphasis on before, what the authors actually wrote. The original documents known as the autographer or autographs were entirely accurate and too without error because those were the ones that were inspired. To help explain that, we did this. I'm going to spend some time doing this, but <clears throat> we did this on, in, in our class. To help explain that concept of the originals being what is inspired, we looked at the International Council Biblical, uh, the document of International Council Biblical Inerrancy. <clears throat> this was a group of over 300 godly men, pastors, theologians, um, Christian leaders who got together in Chicago. Sometimes you'll see it at the Chicago Statement. They got together in three different times, and each of those summits were three days each. And they dealt with, first one was inerrancy of Scripture. The second one was the uh, interpretation or hermeneutic, interpretation of Scripture. And the third was application. That's interesting the way they did that. I don't know if you remember us talking about that, but I told you there were there some pretty famous signatories to this document. I mentioned R.C. Sproul, James Montgomery Boyce, J.I. Packer, Francis Schaeffer, John MacArthur. But I also, I copied it down. I got all the names down because I, I wanted to see who else was on there. J. Adams, Greg Bonson, Edmund Clowney, Dennis Johnson, Robert Raymond, O. Palmer uh, Robertson, Robert Strempel and Robert Godfrey were also there. Well, <clears throat> that first document was done in 1978. In 1980, R.C. Sproul said, I need to do something here with this. We need a commentary on this. So he wrote this, this little pamphlet or document. It's called Explaining Inerrancy, a commentary on the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And then, lo and behold, in 1983, the year after their second summit, that was the first summit, after the second summit, <clears throat> Norman Geisler wrote a document entitled Explaining Hermeneutics, a commentary on the Chicago Statement of Biblical Hermeneutics. Thirty years later, somebody got the idea, ooh, well, let's, let's combine them. So in 2013, they combined the two documents. Okay, getting to the article. Article 10 of this document <clears throat> says this. We affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text of Scripture, which is in the providence of God, can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm 
that copies and translations of Scripture are the Word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. Paraphrases are not inspired, folks. They may have good explanation for them, but they're not inspired. Translations are, insofar as they're faithful to the original text. Then it says, we deny any essential element of the Christian faith is affected by the absence of the autographs, the original writings. We're saying it doesn't affect it, and I'll tell you why. We further deny that the absence of the original autographs renders the assertion of the biblical inerrancy invalid is just as, and, and irrelevant, just isn't true. They're saying we deny that so. Then in Article 12, the document tells us this. We affirm that Scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood and fraud or deceit. Here's the problem. Critics, even some biblical scholars, liberal biblical scholars, have a problem with this. They say, oh, this just turns the doctrine of inerrancy on its head. You know, you don't have the original document, so how do you know? Well, I got four answers for you. First, while the originals no longer exist, we know absolutely they did exist because we have tons of copies. Tons. Run Rhodes, Dr. Run Rhodes has written this. There are more than 24,000 partial and complete manuscript copies of the New Testament. 24,000. These manuscripts, manuscript copies are very ancient and they are available for inspection now. There are also some 86,000 quotations from early church fathers and several thousand lectionaries. A lectionary is a church service book that contains scripture that would be read in, in a church service. He says the bottom line is this. The New Testament has an overwhelming amount of evidence supporting its reliability. When we get to the manuscripts, we'll talk about both the Old Testament and the New Testament manuscripts as well. The second thing was our attitude toward, toward the original will affect our attitude toward the copies. If we think that the originals weren't inspired by God or that they're corrupt, what are we going to think of the copies? They're not inspired or the word of God. If we think they're marred in the copies, oh, how can we trust it? Third thing is an attitude toward the originals. Our attitude toward the originals will affect our attitude toward textual, um, textual uh, scholars. If we believe that the originals were in error, <clears throat> without error, then more than likely we're going to believe that reconstructing those originals, we're reconstructing an errant, an errant Bible. So, Textual criticism is very important to the Christian life. It may not be something you want to dig into, but it is extremely important because they, these guys who love God, love his word, are trying as best they can to ascertain what the original word says. Fourth, this is a biggie, y'all. This is a biggie. Neither Christ nor the apostles 
had original documents of the Old Testament. None of them had the original documents. But that didn't faze them in any sense. They still believed in the reliability and trustworthiness and accuracy of Scripture, and we ought to, too. So the absence of the original documents does not invalidate the doctrine of inerrancy, nor does it turn the doctrine into a mere academic exercise. It is true, however, and we'll talk about this. And over the centuries, the original documents have been lost, and all we have is copies. And, and the copies that we have survived have minor differences. That's why I brought this, my Greek New Testament here. Now, neither Pastor Bretter here or Pastor Brian. This is the Nestle Alden text, and they have various editions. Now, the newest edition they have is the 28th edition. Just going to tell you how old I am. Mine's the third. Anyway, what I was going to tell you about that is the mistakes that they that they have serious. Um, no, the the portions of scripture that they have serious concern about equals one half of a page of the New Testament, Greek New Testament. That's it. The rest of them are pretty well explained, and we'll we'll talk about that more when we get to textual criticism. Okay, where was I? Oh, these textual variants, that's what they're called. See, they come from different regions. And so, uh, and there are different copyists in different regions and in different languages. So, you know, that, has, that comes into a lot of it. And somebody may translate, she, there's a word chi in, in Greek, K-A-I. It can be translated and, or, moreover, but, a lot of stuff. On one side, this. On, another, on the one hand, this. On another hand, that. When do you know how it's translated? It's the same word. One three-letter word. Context. And that's what these guys do. They, they deal with that. So, biblical scholars have determined the wording of the original documents with great certainty. And insofar as we have recovered the original wording, we possess an inerrant word of God. So, what are the estimates Anywhere from 95 to 99.9% of accuracy and accurate duplication of what the Word of God says in the New Testament. So how do we know this? We've got great confidence in the reliability of the Bible because of many manuscripts. Dr. Craig uh, Blomberg, he's, he's a professor of New Testament at Denver Seminary. In the book, <clears throat> The Historical Reliability of the New Testament, he's written this. In the original Greek alone, over 5,000 manuscripts and manuscript uh, frag- fragments <clears throat> and portions of the New Testament have been preserved from early centuries of Christianity. The oldest of these is a scrap of papyrus containing John 18, 31-33, and 37-38. If that come then, it had to show that they had a copy of it then, right? This dated from 125 to 130 A.D. That's the first century Christian 
service. And that would be only like 40 years after John wrote his gospel. This is called the, the Ryland's Papyri or the St. John Fragment or P52 for those who study that. Dr. Andreas um, Kostenberger, he's professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. He said the total tally of more than 6,000 Greek manuscripts, more than 10,000 Latin Vulgate manuscripts, and more than 9,300 early versions result in over 25,000 witnesses to the text of the New Testament. That's our summary. That's what we've, we talked about <clears throat> quite a bit for the first five um, state uh, classes. <clears throat> The next three, in my humble opinion, are much more difficult to explain and to grasp. And they are canonicity, textual criticism, and hermeneutics. So it's almost a quarter till, so we'll stop and, and then we'll pray. Okay. Lord, this is some heavy stuff. It's difficult for us to understand. Uh, you have given us so much to work with. We pray that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds to live what your word says, to believe what you say, to trust you in all that we do and say, because we know that you are the sovereign God over all this. We ask that you bless our service uh, coming up, our church service and the songs and the, the offerings and the sermons. We pray, Father, that you bless everyone who comes to fellowship, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.